we moved in here. I never thought Roger would settle. <laughs> we were mobile, and it was fantastic, and we loved it. But um, I remember he came and said, oh, we're going to look at a, at a building. I was like, really? Uh, and so we built this out. So it's not the building. It's really uh, the people that are here that have really impacted our lives in so many ways. So thank you. And uh, it's, it's just an honor and a privilege to be able to come back here. It was interesting when uh, Pastor Rogers talked about next Sunday. Uh, the, I, I call it the, I'll call it the preach-off. <laughs> All right? Reminded me of a story. Dr. Tony Campolo, uh, great speaker, was uh, in his home church, and uh, they were doing that. He was speaking part of the time, and then the lead pastor was speaking the rest of the time. Now, this is a black church, okay? Tony Campolo's not black. He's Italian, okay? But the guy can preach. So Tony gets up, man, and he just tears it up. He tears it up. The people go wild. They're like, he sits down, and the other pastor says, just watch how you do it. <laughs> he got up and preached a message that that's where the term came. It's Friday. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And, man, he, he worked that thing. <laughs> and then he just sat down and looked at Tony and smiled. <laughs> I don't know how it's going to go next week, but it'll be fantastic, I'm sure. And, you know, that, that big chair out there. Now, Roger always does things big, you know. So I'm sure when that idea came about, he probably said, well, just make it bigger than the one down in Port Jefferson. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, and we'll have to borrow that sometime. Uh, you know, we, uh, we, we do, we switch, we borrow equipment from each other. It's amazing the relationship that we do have and uh, have maintained over the years. So it's, it's very special to be back here. So thank you for having me. Uh, I got a disturbing notification on my uh, phone on the way here this morning. I get it every Sunday morning just before service starts. And it tells me how much time I spend on my phone per day. And it came up two hours and 15 minutes. And I got a confession to make this morning. I do not pray two hours and 15 minutes a day. So I don't know how this is going to come out, but uh, <laughs> God's in control. But the, uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning, is, it's one that's familiar. If you've been around church life at all, it's something that uh, passage that, that you're quite familiar with. It's a great story. And it's a story, I think, that as Christians that... We really think that we understand and, and know pretty well. Um, but I want to revisit this story this morning in a little different way. And let's try to look at it as though we're looking at it for the first time today. Uh, the story, that, it's about the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, Samaria. And it really helps us deal with some modern issues that we uh, face today. And Jesus crosses a n numerous barriers uh, in this story of race, prejudice, and he interacts with a woman that um, is an outcast and is hated and rejected by the Jews. Our Lord encounters a moral outcast and displays, for our benefit, the instruction and proper approach to take when we meet such a person. In this story, he also settles a very theological quarrel that had been going on for centuries and as uh, the topic was, where's the proper place to worship and the manner of worship? And Jesus covers uh, that in the story too. But John, in the beginning of John chapter 4, really gives us the background and the setting 
uh, that, that of this encounter that takes place. What, what I love about Jesus' ministry is that there was times when he drew tremendous crowds. They would come from all over. And there was times when he would take time and sit with one particular person. And that shows me that Jesus values each individual, that he would take time to do that. It wasn't about the mass crowds. There was times for that and places for that. But there was also times where he would sit with someone and just take some time one-on-one. So we see that. So the first six chapter, uh, verses of this chapter, John chapter 4, kind of set the stage for us. And let's read that together. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town uh, of, Sychar, uh, of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting down beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So in these first opening verses, John really uh, calls our attention to three kind of factors that I want to look at this morning. First, he tells us why Jesus left Judea. Jesus left Judea, Judea because he was trying to avoid a controversy that was happening there. The Pharisees were disturbed and and, and, over, and they were making a rivalry between John the Baptist and, and Jesus and who was baptizing more. We find Jesus walks away from this controversy. There's sometimes, there's a time when you just, you just have to walk away. It's not, it's not worth the, uh, getting involved. And in fact, when John says Jesus left Judea, uh, he really means he forsook or abandoned Judea. He didn't want to be there anymore. And he walked away from the controversy. And then John calls us our attention to the route Jesus took uh, on his journey to Galilee. Now, going from Ju- Judea to Galilee, there was actually two different ways that you could travel. The shortest, most direct route uh, to Judea was about 70 miles or a two-and-a-half-day walk. Um, but, if you, but that would take you through Samaria. The journey was a bit rocky, mountainous terrain, but it was much shorter. Many of the Jews chose not to go through Samaria, and we'll see as the story develops really why they didn't take that route. The other way was what they called the Jordan Way. That was a much shorter route, about half the distance. It was hot. It was, a, 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 you know, a flat terrain. It was much easier to walk on, but you would have to walk through the desert and go through the Jordan Valley. And like I said, that journey was almost twice as long as going actually through uh, Samaria, but it was hotter and definitely more comfortable. But the reason they didn't travel this way is because the terrible prejudice against the Samaritan people. Verse 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. One translation translation says he needed to go. In other words, there was a reason why Jesus took the way that he took. I believe that Jesus was on a mission, and we'll, we'll see as his story develops what that was all about. And then thirdly, John calls our attention to the place Jesus stops. It's an historic place. It's called Jacob's Well. This location was about a half a mile outside the uh, city of Samaria, uh, uh, Sychar. And back in Genesis 33, we get the history on this particular location. 
Jacob had dug a well for his flocks and herds many, many years ago. And so we know that from verse 6 that Jacob's well was there. And it says in a passage that Jesus was weary or tired uh, as he journeyed. And he sat, beside, he sat beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, it's no surprise that Jesus was tired or weary. He had been walking in the hot sun all day. Noon was the hottest part of the day. And, you know, it's interesting that in this passage we see the humanity and the divinity of Jesus all in a few verses. It captures the human and divine, God and man, something that we don't understand. But Jesus had that ability to be empowered by God and, and be God himself, yet he also went through things humanly that we face too. So Jesus sat down at the well to rest, and, and the disciples had gone into the city to, to, to find some food. And then starting in verse 7, it gives us a remarkable account of a conversation between Jesus and this woman who comes to draw water. Now, it's interesting. We never find out what her name is. But there's some key details about her life in this story that we see in this passage. She was just known as the woman of Samaria. So she was a woman. That was her gender. And in this culture, we know that men did not speak to women in public. Jesus was by title a rabbi or teacher, even though he wasn't formally trained for that. But according to uh, rabbinical law, rabbis were instructed never uh, to talk to a woman in public. Even if it was your mother or your sister, you just didn't talk to women at all in public. In fact, that culture thought that women were regarded as totally incapable to understand complicated subjects like theology and religion. But Jesus breaks that barrier and separates, uh, and, and, and you know, breaks that barrier and, 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 and approaches this woman. Now, the Samaritans were a mixed race. They had been dispersed Israelites back in the day, and they intermarried with uh, people from other lands and resulted in a nation, really, of, of half-bred people. And so it was very distasteful and evil for a devout Jew to speak with a Samaritan. And the true religion of Israel became intermingled with heathen idolatry. And so we see it's noon. The Samaritan woman comes to draw water at noon. See, she scheduled her day to really avoid her deepest pain. The women of that day would typically come to draw water early in the morning or later in the evening when it was a cooler part of the day. It was a social high point, an event for them. They would talk and laugh and socialize around the well. But she planned her day to escape the pain of her shame. I just want to say about shame this morning. Shame can come a few different ways. Shame can come because of our behavior and we bring it on ourselves. And shame can also come as a result of someone doing something to us that makes us feel shameful. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're familiar with shame, I want to speak to that because Jesus speaks to that in this passage. So this woman was full of shame. And you know, sometimes people that live with shame, they do things to avoid other people. Or they do shameful things. And so, if you're sitting there this morning and shame something that you've had to deal with in your lifetime, Jesus wants to know 
wants you to know that he doesn't want you to live in shame today. That he's got an answer for that. But she planned her day to escape the pain of her shame. She avoided running into women of the village. So she would, call, she would come to draw water alone at the hardest part of the, the, hardest part of the day. And it in, indicated one thing to us, that she was a social outcast, that she was ostracized. Her presence at the well at this time of day uh, may further uh, show evidence of her lack of character or at least her lack of popularity among the women of Sychar. Yet Jesus found her there. And maybe this is the reason that he had to go through Samaria. I believe Jesus had a divine appointment. He knew that he was going to encounter this woman. Now the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of the day, they had a very simple system to help them keep holy. They would keep the law, and they would simply keep their distance from sinners. They thought sin was contagious, that one could catch it merely by being close to sinners. And this is one reason that they were so disturbed and upset with Jesus at times when our Lord was having close contact with sinners. The scriptures tell us he would go and have a meal with them. He would go over their homes, and this really disturbed them. So we see that this woman was lost in a sea of brokenness. Maybe she was under the assumption that she was too far gone. And Jesus is unfazed by her sin. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he asked an outcast for help. Verse 7 and 8, read like this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so we can see a revelation here of, of, of what's happening. But Jesus was thirsty from the journey. But you know what? This woman was thirsty also. She was thirsty from a hard long life, unsatisfied life, a life of rejection. And in asking her for a drink of water, Jesus probably caught her off guard. Jews didn't talk with Samaritans. They didn't socialize with them. But not only that, he was asking her for a drink. And certainly Jews would not share eating or drinking utensils with Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews didn't drink from the same cup. I just want to remind you this morning that in God's, God's eyes, no one is ever too far gone. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of our lives. He'll never let us be alone, and he'll always be right there. And so we see from this passage that Jesus asks her an important question, give me a drink. And we go on in verses 9 through 11, and it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you a Jew? Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the, the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you, have given you living water. It's interesting in this passage that we know that Jesus is speaking kind of in a, in a figuratively way, but this, this woman doesn't really understand what he's saying. But this isn't the only time that Jesus referred to 
the living water that he would get. In, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this uh, he said about the spirit whom, uh, whom those who believed in him had, were, were to receive. For as of yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus wasn't glorified. So we see that Jesus also makes reference to the living water that he would give. Now, in verses 11 and 12, it, it reads like this. It says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? She said to him, you don't have anything to draw water with. The well is deep. Now, that well is probably 60 to 100 feet deep. But this woman had a deep need in her life. Her hurt was deep. And see, the only one that can get to hurt like that is Jesus. He's the only one that can, can reach in there and touch somebody in that way. But she asked him a great question. Where do you get this living water? And Jesus goes on in verse 13 through 15. He says, Jesus said to her, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks the water that I'm uh, going to give him will never thirst again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And a woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Now, it became clear, certainly I don't think she really understood what Jesus was referring to. The living water that Jesus would give is available consistently so that one one's thirsty, they could drink again and not thirst. The living water really was the presence of God, his Holy Spirit in our lives. It takes away our frustrated soul's thirst forever and turns us into a person who overflows with life, not just for yourself, but for others. And many Christians, they don't sometimes understand this truth. They don't realize that there's a place where when they're thirsty, they can go. There's a sense of restlessness. There's a desire for more that can only be met through a continued infilling of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of living water. Now, I need to be honest with you this morning. There's been times when I've been spiritually thirsty. I felt like I was dry or dead inside. And I know I had to go back and be refilled again. We need to be consistently filled with God's Spirit. The world, life, and situations can deplete us and, 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 and cause us to be thirsty. I heard someone say that we need to go back and be refilled because we leak. And so we can go back and say, God, fill me. Fill me, Lord. And when you feel like you're empty, when you feel like, you know, you're missing that aspect of your life that is so important, just ask God to fill you. And this uh, living water that Jesus promises her is available to you and I. Now, in verse 16, it seems like Jesus begins to change the subject. He's, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come. 
Now, this woman was living in relational brokenness. She was thirsty for a relationship. She wanted intimacy. She wanted security. She wanted acceptance. And she was searching this out through men. What she was looking for can really only be found in Jesus. Instead, she was alone, isolated, rejected, and thirsty. In verse 17 and 18, read like this. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you have, uh, have is not your husband. Um, what you have said is true. And so Jesus begins to address an issue that's in her life. And it's interesting because Jesus knew in this woman's heart that she was thirsty. She was hungering for more. That was the cry of her heart, and it was unmet. It was an expectation she had that wasn't met. That anxiety that was sitting inside of her was coming to the surface. And that stirring in her, it was a thirst that she could never quench. I just want to mention this this morning because I think it's really important part of this story. That in that culture in those days, husbands divorced their wives. Wives couldn't divorce their husbands. And so five times she had been divorced by men. It wasn't her choice. It was theirs. Now, we could look at it and say, well, she can get them, but she can't keep them. You know? But I don't know if that was a fact. But she had no, no, uh, no she couldn't find... There was a void in her life, and she couldn't find it through a man. And, you know, we try to fill our lives with so many things. Money, possessions, status, position, power, things. We try to fill our lives with relationships. And Jesus begins to really read her heart, not her lifestyle or her sin. And he gently begins to expose the sin that's in her life. He doesn't see how deep your sin is this morning. He sees your heart, and he sees the beauty in which he created you. Her sin, which was actually in those days worthy of death, is out in the open now. There's nothing hidden. Now her true thirst, her real need, has become self-evident. Remember Jesus said in Luke 5, 32, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus leads her to a place where now she's got to face her sin and the things that were destroying her. She needed to understand what was ruining her life and keeping her from satisfaction, and that was her sin. And in verse 19 and 20, it goes on, it says, A woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, Jesus has just brought a very sensitive thing to the surface in her life. And it really looks like now she's trying to change the subject, you know? Jesus had invaded an area of her life. He brought it to full exposure. And it was unpleasant probing of Jesus. But I believe that she was admitting that Jesus was dead right on. Jesus was actually reading her mail that day because she called him a prophet. She sensed that there was something different about him. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus didn't come in and say, hey, this is your sin and this is who I am. He just gently 
is leading her to a place where he's going to show her and tell her what this living water is all about. And in verse 20 uh, through 24, it says, Jesus said to a woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then verse 24 says, God is a spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we see that Jesus is telling her that worship is not a place, but it's a person. It's not an address. It's not a location. Now, I know this morning we came together, and it's really important that we do that. We come together and worship together. But it's not just this location that you can worship in. Worship is life. It's, God's got to be involved in our lives in everyday aspects. So Jesus was telling her how you worship and whom you worship is vastly more important than where you worship. The place is not essential, but it's in the spirit in which you worship that's really important. And Jesus directs this woman from the external question of where to the internal question of how. Worship must come from within and must be based on a true perception of who God is. We got to know who God is if we're going to worship him. Worship him must come from the spirit within instead of merely from uh, formed or external or traditional settings. And the key phrase in this passage is to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is still seeking for those type of worshipers today. Matthew 15, 8 says, Jesus quotes Isaiah's prophecy, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And so it's not that we come together just to sing a few songs together, but we come to worship our God. Some of the words that we sang this morning are so powerful in our relationship with him, declaring who he is, and declaring who we are in him. And Jesus is still work, looking for true worshipers. In verse 25 and 26, says, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And 26 is so powerful because it says, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now he begins to reveal to her who he really is. The Lord brings this woman to a point where she understands that she's a sinner. She needs help with her sin. Okay, she's in need of salvation. She needs, she, now he's told her that her spiritual system of worship doesn't work. But he's telling her that it's going to take faith in Christ. And he is the promised Messiah. And then it seems like the story comes to kind of a, kind of an interruption here. It says in verse 27, then his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman, but no one said, uh, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the disciples come back. They've gotten their food now, what they went to get, and Jesus is in this conversation with her about this. 
And it's interesting because I really believe that this woman took a drink of living water out of this passage. And the reason I, what I base it on, on, on is in the next verse. It says, um, let me find my place here. Okay, so the woman left her jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So his disciples return with, with, with food, and she leaves. Now, why did she come to the well? She came to the well to draw water. She was thirsty and in need of water. But it says here she left her water jar and went into the town. And I believe something happened in her life at that moment. She's going back into the town where she's ostracized and criticized and ridiculed. And now she wants to tell everyone about this man that told me everything about myself. Could he be the one? And that's what happens when we encounter Jesus. See, that living water is never meant to be kept to ourselves. It's meant to be given out. And she desired to go and tell. She, her original plan was to draw water from the well, but she leaves and goes into Sychar and tells her, come and see this man who told me everything about myself, everything I ever did. And it goes on in the story. It says, meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples uh, said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, my food is not to do the will of him who is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not uh, do you not say there are yet four months and comes a harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. But here uh, uh, the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, I may be reading into this passage a little bit, but I really think when Jesus said to them, look, at the harvest, I believe at that moment, people were beginning to come out of Sychar to see this man that she had told them about. I think Jesus was looking down the road and seeing them coming, and he was pointing out to his disciples. See, they were concerned. They wanted to make sure Jesus had food eating. He said, I'm not that concerned about that right now. What I have is of greater value uh, than eating food. And what the food that Jesus was really talking about in this passage is spiritual food. And then it goes on and finishing up this story in verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. She got bold 
and going back into Sychar to tell people to come out. But I believe that she received and experienced a dramatic change in her life. She couldn't keep it to herself. See, that living water has to flow out of our lives. Jesus, it's, it's like, you know, it's like when you went to a wedding at Bible times. And if the host didn't want you to be there anymore, they stopped filling up your glass. They just, he would tell them, don't give them anything more to drink. And that was your indication that the vet was over for you. Okay, it's time to leave now. But man, if he wanted you there, they'd fill that glass till it spilled over onto the table. And then you knew, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. The host wants me here. And I really believe that this living water that Jesus was talking about, it overflows in our life to fill others. There's a couple things I want to mention in closing today. First of all, and like I said before, if shame has been a part of your life, Jesus wants to free you from that. This woman got rid of her shame that day. She wasn't living in shame anymore. We could see now she's willing to tell people, talk to people, and tell them. Jesus wants to free us today from shame. Shame is a terrible thing, and Jesus does not want us to live in shame. The other thing I see here is that um, if you're dry this morning, Jesus wants to fill you up. Not just enough to get you through today, but overflow in your life that you'll leave here and you go out there. There's, you know how many hungry and thirsty people are out, out there? I'll tell you, if you purpose to ask God to show you and bring you people, you'll find them. You'll find them. They're there. They're hungry. They don't even know why they're thirsty. But you can share that living water with them. And it's interesting in this passage that they believed her testimony. But then as Jesus stayed with them and he continued to share for two more days, they said, um, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is, is indeed the Savior of the world. This one life that day was changed, and it affected that whole town. You just don't know the ripple effect of your life and what it can mean. I love this church because I, they care about people, and I know that they're out there, and they're ministering to people, and that's fantastic, and that's the way it should be. God wants our lives to be so full of him that we can't contain it, that we give it to others. I want to encourage you in your faith to let him fill you with living water. Let's pray this morning. Father God, thank you for this uh, opportunity and time to share your word. I thank you for, Lord, your life and your ministry that so impacts people's lives that it changes them. God, it brings healing and hope. And Lord, you knew everything about this woman. You knew what her issues were, but they were only surface issues. She had a deep need that only you could meet. And Lord, I thank you that she embraced and drank from the living water. And this morning as we leave here, I pray that our lives would be filled with you. And God, that we would begin to share that with others. Thank you for the living water. Thank you for your spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.